True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to my interview with Colonel Kirsten Clark of SAPS's Investigative Psychology Unit, Combating Digital Sex Crimes. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Dante the Inferno, Catherine Reardon, Taylor Moore, Dexter Lindicky, and Zelizna Smith for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you like discounts, because who doesn't, head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs, print crowd for all your printing requirements, and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for 10% discounts and support the show at the same time. You can also get 10% off when you order from Wallpaper Online by using the code TRUECRIME at checkout. Other forms of support that make a huge difference include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser and parole officer to listen, and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use to listen. When I arrange to interview someone for the podcast, I'm always pretty relaxed about the format. I don't like question and answer interviews because I find it too limiting. So for the most part, I just let the conversation flow. I do send through a list of topics I want to discuss just to guide the person being interviewed in case they need to prepare any information beforehand. I often do throw in questions that come up while we're talking though, and very often I get far more valuable insights from structuring my interviews this way than I would being really rigid about the format. Plus, being independent, I can make my podcasts as long as I want. So if we talk for three hours and the info is really interesting, then you get a three-hour podcast. When I reached out to Colonel Kirsten Clark, the section commander of SAPS's investigative psychology section in the Western Cape, I sent through some pretty standard questions. What does the IPS do? That sort of thing. When we started talking, though, the conversation took a very different turn. And really, I found it a far more valuable and important conversation than the one I thought we would be having. You see, I've been thinking a lot about the dangers that lurk online for children and adults alike. With South Africa recently having introduced laws that protect people against so-called revenge porn, it's become clear that digital sex crimes have become a huge problem and it's now vital to have a legal framework in place to protect citizens. Another topic that's almost constantly on my mind is how at-risk children are online and how easy it is for them to be groomed and abused by online predators, often posing as children their own age and sometimes not even bothering with that. I'd been looking at some of the people I could interview around these topics, 
So when Colonel Clark started telling me that these exact subjects are a strong focus of her work, well, that was that. The interview went from being a general overview of the work that the IPS does to an interview about digital sex crimes. Sometimes things turn out exactly the way they're meant to. Before I get into the interview, I want to clarify some terms for you just so that you know what we're talking about. The first one is revenge porn. This is when someone distributes intimate images or videos of you without your consent. So perhaps you're dating someone, and as part of your sexual interactions, you send them some explicit photos of yourself. If you're sitting there shaking your head, don't. It's something that's been happening as long as human beings have had the capability to take images of themselves. Before the internet, people would send raunchy photos by snail mail. Now, it's become as easy as pressing two buttons. But the implications have become enormous, as you'll hear Colonel Clark tell us. So revenge porn happens when the relationship ends and your ex-partner decides they're going to publicly distribute the images you sent them to shame you or destroy your public image. Essentially, it's the modern version of spray-painting your ex's car or cutting up their clothing. Just far meaner and with a much longer-lasting impact. Another term I want to clarify is child abuse material. This term refers to what many people and South African law still call child porn. They are images of any person under the age of consent, which in South Africa is 17. But as we're learning, language matters, and the term pornography implies some form of consent from the people creating the content. But children cannot consent, and as such, Creating such content with children is a form of abuse and a crime, hence the far more appropriate term, child abuse material. And really, I think even revenge porn needs another look, because it implies that the victim somehow did something that resulted in the perpetrator taking the action, like they deserved it, when really, for the most part, Such actions are often just triggered by a breakup, and someone with some narcissistic tendencies who can't handle what they perceive as rejection. I'm sure we can find a better term for that too. Right, now that we've all had a crash course in terms related to digital sex crimes, let's get into that interview with Colonel Kirsten Clark of SAP's IPS. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. My name is Colonel Kirsten Clark. I am a clinical psychologist and I'm the section commander of the investigative psychology unit in the Western Cape. As I always do when I chat with these interesting people, I asked Colonel Clark about her journey to working in the IPS, and it's a pretty cool and quite inspirational story. 
I started studying, uh, well, before I started studying, when I was still in school, I really had a fascination for becoming a forensic psychologist. And at that time, there was no such thing in South Africa. There had been no such unit made. The only one that I was aware of at that time was obviously the one at the FBI. So when I left school, I went and I studied uh, through UNISA. So I did my undergrad and my honours through UNISA while I was working. And it was continually still at the back of my mind that I wanted to do this. So it was something I was really passionate about, but it just kind of felt like there was no way in without having to go over to the States. Uh, little did I know that at the same time, around about 1997, Minky Pistorius uh, started the unit, but it was very small when she started. It was, I think, herself and a criminologist. The unit was not very well known. And I kind of thought, well, I'm just going to put my dream on hold for a bit. And I went off and I kind of got a bit of life experience. So I worked um, for 10 years in marketing and PR and I wrote for magazines and I did a lot of stuff like that. But it was always there at the back of my mind as something I wanted to do. So then when I got into my 30s, I thought, well, if I'm going to become a psychologist, I'm going to, I want to do it now or I'm never going to do it. So I applied to get into master's, which I did at UKZN, and I finished that. I did my internship and my comserve with the Department of Health in KZN. And then after that, I went into private practice, and I worked at a rehab center at the same time. I was also doing uh, a lot of lecturing for the School of Medicine, and I ended up finding myself working mostly with personality disorders and people who had alternative lifestyles. So that seemed to become like the focus of my practice, which was really strange. And then in 2017, there was an advert that came out in the newspaper and they said they were looking for clinical psychologists in the IPS. So I applied thinking, well, you know, if I don't, I'm going to regret it. Um, I didn't think that I'd have much of a chance. I was sure that there would be people who would be way more qualified than I was. But six months later, I got the phone call saying that I had been accepted and offered the post in the Western Cape. So I closed up my practice and we sold our house and we did all of, of those things within a month. It was insane. And we left Durban and we came down to Cape Town. And I started my job with the IPU. And initially I was I wouldn't say overwhelmed, but it certainly is a very different environment to being within a Department of Health setting. It's very paramilitary, as I'm, I'm sure you know, your rank is important and there's there's quite a lot of rules that you have to follow. It was quite interesting that I sort of floundered around a little bit in terms of the police part of it. The, the psych part of it was was obviously not a problem. I felt that I found my home which was wonderful. I kind of felt like this was exactly where I needed to be. And over a period of time, I got myself a couple of mentors within the crime scene investigation side of it who helped me. I had some help from the, the ex-Brigadier Labaskachny, for which I'm eternally grateful because at that time I was the only psychologist in the unit uh, and I carried on being the only psych for two years. It was like, you know, like I say, it was like coming home. It was... It took a long time to get here, a bit of a roundabout way of getting here. So I've been with uh, IPS for four years now. And, yeah, I can't say I'd actually want to be doing anything else. 
If you've listened to my content for a while, you'll know that I too took a pretty roundabout route to the work I'm doing now. And Colonel Clark's words, it feels like coming home, completely resonate with me. I love a story like this, because I chat with so many people who feel trapped in what they're doing, and really want to be doing something else, but fear change, and fear that weird and ambiguous term, failure. So whenever I can get a chance to highlight a story like Colonel Clark's, I most certainly will. It's never too late to find your home, and when you're doing what you're meant to be doing, you know it. And can we just take a moment to acknowledge just how lucky we are that we have people like Colonel Clark in SAPS, who literally turned her life upside down to be able to do this work that she is so passionate about and serve our country as a whole. She says, It was a bit of a nightmare in the beginning, and understandably so. There's been a couple of moments where I thought, oh my God, what the hell am I doing? Like I can remember writing my my master's end of the year exams with my daughter on my lap because she was still a baby. So I was I was breastfeeding and writing my exams. <laughs> and then just deciding, I mean, like in a matter of a month, okay, we're gonna go and do this. I've been offered this job and we literally shipped my entire family over to Cape Town. And I've got quite young kids, so it's demanding. Uh, from the, the point of view that it can take over your life if you let it. It can be quite difficult to juggle, you know, a family life, a personal life with your work life because you're never completely off, if that makes sense. I mean, you, you, yes, you're always on call, that's that's expected, but after you leave work, often the cases kind of play around in your mind a lot and you are still kind of stuck with one foot at work, if I could put it that way. It drives my my partner nuts. He hates it. <laughs> he says, I'm never, I'm never really home. <laughs> and this is something that many professionals like Colonel Clark tell me. When I interviewed Dr. Gerard Labaskachny, he echoed this sentiment. And in his book, Profiler Diaries, he also speaks about how difficult it is for SAP's members to keep up relationships. Captain Ben Boyson also told me how he believes the fact that he's married to a fellow member of SAPS has been an integral part of them maintaining a strong marriage. And again, these are the things we don't think about when we badmouth SAPS as a whole because of the actions of individuals or policy that the people on the ground actually can't control. Colonel Clark went on to explain how her unit is slightly different to the other units across the country. The one thing I will say is that our unit in the Western Cape is a little different to the rest of the units across the country in that we've started to specialize in certain types of cases. So our unit deals a lot with pedophilia and we deal a lot with child sexual abuse material or child pornography in in South African legal terms. So that makes up about half of the work that we do. So we're the only unit in the country that really focuses a fair amount of our attention on that. And it's kind of funny how we've ended up, just because of the number of cases that we've worked on, we've become sort of the known as being the unit that does that. 
it's quite scary. It's interesting the parallel between that and then my personal practice, how it's almost as if what I was doing in my private practice kind of prepared me for doing this because it is an incredibly hard topic or an incredibly hard crime to work with because especially if you have children, you end up constantly seeing monsters everywhere. And this is the moment I realized we weren't going to be talking about general IPS stuff because that is just too important a topic not to focus on. So we did. What's interesting is that there are three main hotspots in South Africa and two of them are in the Western Cape. So it's Johannesburg, Cape Town and the Southern Cape. So you're sort of looking at George, Neisner, and that area. So we've got two hotspots within our province that are known for child abuse material. And we're starting to see, you know, two years ago, if you'd asked me for a profile on a person who had child pornography, I would have been able to give you a very, very specific profile and that it would have been a white male, 40s to 50s, with his own high-functioning job or owning his own company. He would be married, he'd have children. You know, there would be a whole list of things that I'd I'd be able to say to you. I can't say that anymore. We're finding it's going across the color line now. It's becoming a crime that doesn't know any boundaries in terms of socioeconomic, you know, the demographics of the the offenders. They no longer have to have all this high-end expensive equipment. You just literally need a smartphone. And it's, it's quite interesting to see how the profile of a child pornography possessing individual has changed just even over the last two years. It's become really interesting to see how easily people can get into it just based on having a phone and an internet connection. That's it. We're seeing such a change in the type of person who is accessing and using child pornography. And it is quite disturbing because it's it almost feels like it's overwhelming. You get one And then from that one, you sort of, you get like a list of like 10 others that that person's been chatting with. So then you go and you investigate those 10 others. And then each one of those has a whole lot more that they've been talking to. So the whole thing just like spirals out. It's actually amazing how many people in South Africa, and I say people for, because we're starting to see a lot of females as well involved with it. It's no longer just a male only crime. And we're starting to see a lot more production in South Africa too, which is something we never used to see before. It's a very scary kind of crime. I think there are very few people that want to be involved with it. I'm not saying I like it at all. It's not fun looking at child pornography, but there's a huge amount of satisfaction when you actually get a, you know, you go through this long drawn out trial and then the person eventually gets an eight-year sentence and you think to yourself, Great. They're actually taking this this crime seriously now, that they're not just regarding it as being, well, they only had pictures. They're actually seeing it as being, these people are being complicit in the production of the material. And, and that's been a big mind shift that we've we've seen as well, which is great. A couple of things, yeah. Firstly, isn't it interesting how as our country has started to slowly level out the playing field in terms of people having access to resources like the internet and smartphones, regardless of their socioeconomic status, which on the one side is hugely important to the economic growth of our country, 
and gives people access to opportunities. On the other side, the darker side, that same leveling out is benefiting something else. It's like this big tree sprouting and flourishing next to a newly formed water source. But in that same ecosystem is a poisonous invader plant that's also growing and flourishing from that very same water source. The second thing I took from what Colonel Clark said here is how she sees monsters everywhere. And that's because today... There really are monsters everywhere. As she mentioned, there's almost no way to profile a child abuse material offender anymore, at least not by race, socioeconomic status or personal circumstances, not even by gender. Yes, all you, I teach my children to be wary of strange men proponents. I'm a stack record, I know. And this just proves why. Don't assume women are safe places. Now, I want to also clarify why Colonel Clark is so relieved to be seeing eight-year sentences for child abuse material possession. Because to us, that might seem like a short sentence. But coming from where our justice system was with these crimes, not that long ago, it's huge progress. Just a few years back, we were giving people suspended sentences and fines for this stuff. We were not giving them prison sentences. We were just letting them back out. And as I would say to Colonel Clark, we know that this is hugely problematic because someone who's in possession of child abuse material is not just in possession of some photos. The nature of that material means that at some level, they have paedophilic tendencies. You know, the the thing that I always go back to is you will have the pornography or the type of pornography that you are interested in, right? If you are interested in lesbian pornography, for, for example, that would be the type of pornography that you would have on your phone or on your computer or that you would look at. You're not going to find someone who does not have a sexual interest in children with child pornography. You have the pornography you're interested in. So it's a very simple way of looking at it, I I know, but it is perhaps the easiest way that I can put it across. And it's something I always try and say to the courts is that you you don't look at what you don't want to see. What turns a person on sexually can tell you a lot about their psychology. On a very basic level, There is not always a negative connotation to that. If BDSM is your thing, that doesn't necessarily mean you have some deep, dark psychological issue you need to deal with. Maybe that's just your thing. And between two consenting adults, there's no problem with that. But when a sexual fetish, for want of a significantly better word, becomes an intense or overwhelming desire that is required in order for you to become sexually aroused at all. It's called a paraphilia. So, occasionally indulging in BDSM, for instance, is not a paraphilia. It's just something you enjoy. 
but you can also enjoy sexual encounters without BDSM elements. But if you find yourself unable to have any sexual enjoyment if the act does not revolve around your fetish, that can become problematic. Further, when that paraphilia becomes harmful to either you or someone else, it's called a paraphilic disorder. And this is what pedophilia is in its essence. And this is what courts need to understand when they sentence people in possession of child abuse material. The material is not the biggest problem. It's what the material represents. And it represents some level of paraphilic disorder in which the offender may be incapable of gaining sexual gratification in any other way. When you give someone like that a suspended sentence or a fine, all you're doing is reinforcing their paraphilic disorder. You're essentially giving them permission to carry on. The other side of this coin is that if both the justice system and the correction system do not understand what they're dealing with, the entire process is flawed. You will just be housing an offender for eight years, rather than structuring rehabilitation and, most importantly, parole conditions around the criminological aspects of the crime they've committed. And the rehabilitation rates are exceptionally low. It's less than 0.5%. So um, you, you're looking at a, a particular crime as well that is that is incredibly hard to rehabilitate. That's not to say that every single person who has child sexual abuse material in their possession is necessarily a hands-on offender. But, you know, often the, the two do go hand in hand. And that's what's always something that we have to look at when we arrest somebody who has child pornography, we always then have to start expanding that search out to did this person actually commit any acts themselves or how close were they to doing it or were they grooming or, you know, was there um, online grooming especially? I mean, we're starting to see a lot of men talking to young girls over platforms such as Likey and Instagram and So it it starts getting a little bit more complicated and nuanced than just someone having a whole bunch of photos on their computer. There's a complexity of behaviors that comes with it, and you have to check for all of that. It can be quite overwhelming. And the funniest thing for me always is when when I eventually we go out and we arrest these people, is how normal they are. These are just normal average, everyday people who go to church, have a job, have normally got a really good marriage. Um, It could be anybody. It really could be anyone. I think this is something that almost all survivors of sexual abuse will tell you. There was no sign on my abuser or rapist's head that said, stay away. There were no horns growing out of their head. They were the uncle from church the teacher at school, the cute guy I met on Facebook who said he was a teenager who was actually a 35-year-old accountant and married with children. And again, almost always, we're looking out for men. Men are the ones we need to watch out for, but that's a fallacy. Women are doing this too. 
and I felt like Colonel Clark was reading my mind when she said what she said next. I recently did a, a child murder case in the Eastern Cape, and one of the things that kind of struck me while I was doing that, that trial is how differently we treat female accused who are mothers and how, how differently the male accused who are fathers are treated, especially when it comes to anything to do with their children, whether it's murdering their children or it's engaging their children and all of this, this type of stuff. The point that I'm always trying to make is that just because you're a mother doesn't mean that you are a whole individual who doesn't have their own flaws and failures. That I battle to understand personally how, especially after dealing with so many of these, these types of offenders, how they can actually be treated differently. Just because you're a mother, I feel, should not get any sort of preferential treatment. If anything, I feel that you should be regarded with a harsher eye not that I'm saying the law should prosecute uh, female offenders with, you know, greater sentences. But my feeling is that if you're ch- you are using your children in the production of child pornography, you are violating that trust that that child has in you. And you are violating the idea that society has that if you're, you're a mother, you are above all of these types of crimes. And it's not true. It's really, from personal experience, I can tell you it's not true. I really could not agree more, and I've said it time and again when I've covered cases where a mother is involved in harming her children. The act of giving birth to a child does not magically cure you of your human flaws, of your past traumas, and it doesn't give you any special powers to always do the right thing. Mothers are human beings. Women are human beings. The fact that society has gifted, and yes, I'm putting inverted commas around that word, us with some maternal crown, does not change our fallibility. And it certainly should not impact our culpability either. You always have a choice. And I think that, you know, especially with these mothers who I've found involved in these cases, they choose, this is going to sound awful, especially the ones who, who use their own children and the material that they're producing, they choose to do this. It is a choice. That probably sounds quite controversial. <laughs> there are many things that you can do. Uh, if you find that you, say, for example, I've had one case where the woman said to me, well, I did it to make money. I needed the money to help our family live. I asked her, well, was there nobody else in the family who'd be able to look after the children for you? And she said, yes, there was my mother and my sister, but this seemed to be the most, um, it almost like she was saying the easiest way out, you know, was to produce the material and, and sell it, you know, to Americans. So she was earning in dollars and all the rest of it. Uh, so it's quite interesting to see that, even though there are choices available, even with the, the women who do who murder their own children, you know, you, you always say to them afterwards, well, could you not have given them to somebody or handed them over to the state to be put into foster care until you were in a better position? And they said, well, that just never, it was never something I thought about. This, this seemed to be the best way out. And that's incredibly sad. And this is why, regardless of socioeconomic circumstances, although courts may see this as some mitigating factor in sentencing, 
it does not impact your culpability for the crime. Because millions of families battle financially on a daily basis, and they don't sell their children's bodies or kill them. Equally, though, I often think about the thought process that some of these people may take when allowing their own children to be abused, and I wonder if perhaps they aren't survivors of some type of abuse themselves, and because they've never dealt with what happened to them, and also as quite a natural trauma response, they minimize that in their own heads, saying, well, this happened to me when I was a child, and I'm fine, so it won't impact my kids. That is definitely a possible thing. One of the the risk factors that we look for in people who commit hands-on sexual offences with children is a history of sexual abuse in their own past. So that would make sense to me. Unfortunate, but yes, it does actually make sense. Again, this does not excuse the behaviour. It's just one of the many reasons why someone may be involved in something like this. Because many more people are physically, sexually and emotionally abused as children and do not offend in this manner. One way of looking at it is you, if you grew up in a physically abusive home, right, so you were beaten for anything, you know, the most ridiculous reasons, you have a choice whether you can do that again and repeat that pattern in your own family, or you have a choice whether that you, you're not going to go that way. You're not going to see violence as a solution to conflict. So every child that grows up in an abusive home does not end up being an abusive adult. By this point in the interview, we already knew we were on a roll. An entirely unexpected roll, but a roll all the same. So we just stuck with it. And Colonel Clark had some really interesting insights to share about the newly revealed link between human trafficking and digital sex crimes. So what we also are starting to do is there's a bit of a shift in thinking within the whole justice system that you can actually regard child sexual abuse material as a form of digital human trafficking because it is crossing international lines and it is crossing, you know, provincial borders and that sort of thing. And these are women who are children specifically who are being trafficked for the purposes of sex. And while they may not physically be moving across the world, they are digitally being, you know, there's transactions that are happening digitally with that material. And there's something else that that I always try and impress upon people is that it is a, it's what we call an aggregate harm offence. And what I mean by that is, and perhaps the easiest way I can explain it, is you are a child of seven years old who is raped by your uncle and he films it. He then distributes that to a WhatsApp group that he belongs to, that is with a whole bunch of other hands-on offenders. They then, one of them then takes that and they post it on a platform called, say, for example, Gigatribe. Or they take it to the dark net and they sell it there. Now, 20 years later, you are 27 and you have to live with the thought that this material is still circling the globe. It's still being exchanged. People are still buying it. And at the end of the day, there's someone sitting in a dark room somewhere with that video playing on a computer screen in front of them and they're masturbating. How do you 
reconcile the fact that the abuse happened, yes, but now it's compounded by the fact that there is still this material out there. There's nothing you can do about it, but there are plenty of people who are still using it on a day-to-day -day basis. That, uh, if that happened to me, I would personally be devastated. I would not know how to make sense of that. Being, being physically abused or sexually abused is one aspect of this whole trauma. But now you have a look at the offense as it's gathered over the years. How do you come to an understanding of that? How do you not feel that the world is a bad place? How do you feel that you can't trust? I mean, you would not trust people because you don't know who's seen that. You could go for a job interview and someone would have done an internet search on you and if they used your real name, boom, up pops this video. It's, it's horrific. It's horrific. And it's exactly the same with even with self-produced child sexual abuse material. So where you have teenagers who are producing material which they are exchanging either with other teenagers or with adults, what I think a lot of them don't realize is that they actually are committing an offense themselves by producing that material. But say, for example, you share it with someone who you feel that you have confidence in and, and you trust, and that person then goes and spreads that all the way around the school. So they put it on all the school groups. How do you deal with that? That's got such widespread consequences. You're not only talking about it going around that school, Eventually, it's going to go to all the schools in the area. And at some point, you know, you're going to be faced with the fact that everyone's going to be saying, hey, it's that girl from that video or it's that guy. Impact of these things goes a lot further than when the video button is stopped or when you stop recording or you stop taking the photos. It just escalates and spirals from there. And once it's out there, we can't get it back. We can maybe stop a website from showing it. We can maybe close down a website or we can, you know, pull in kids who've been sending the video around. We can do all of that, but we cannot stop the material getting out there. No matter what we do, once it's left your phone, we cannot get it back. So much important stuff to unpack there. The concept of an aggregate harm offence. An offence which, when committed, the harm to the victim cannot be measured by physical impact or loss, or even temporary trauma, which could be dealt with in a relatively defined period. Because, as Colonel Clark says, no matter how old the survivor of the abuse is, if they know that the material that documented their abuse is still being circulated, that trauma compounds daily. And that trafficking link. That survivor could be sitting in a cinema or in their office at work and they're being actively trafficked at that moment, continuously. And there's absolutely nothing they can do about it. Why? Because of download buttons. Because of screen recorder apps and screenshot capabilities. All this technology has been greatly beneficial to the human race. 
but it is also the survivor's worst nightmare because it perpetuates their trauma every single day. And then there's that point Colonel Clark made about people taking and sharing images of themselves. That image does not even need to leave your phone for you to be at risk of becoming a lifelong victim of that trauma. Your cloud storage can get hacked. Your phone could get stolen. This is the reality. It's not fun and it's not sexy, but it's real. Once it's out there, it's out there. And that's something I really want a lot of our teenagers to know is that it's not just a silly joke. It's, it's not something that, that you do because it's going to come back and bite you badly. It, it's a very serious thing. And what's even worse is when you, you send the material to someone who's pretending to be the same age as you, and they're not, and they're specifically doing this to, to lure you in. There was a case last year of a, a young boy, um, I'm not going to disclose where, but he had been approached by an American who was pretending to be the same age as him and coerced this, this boy into sending him some images and was slowly grooming him to start sending videos. When the boy's mother came forward to say that she had found all of this stuff, we started tracking this person backwards. And we found out that he had actually been arrested in America the day before. I don't know how, <laughs> I mean, the odds of this, because the timing was just so weird. So this guy had actually been arrested in America and he was on charges of exactly child porn possession and then manufacture and distribution. And one of the last messages he had sent from his phone before he was arrested was, I've lined up a South African boy. We'll have videos very soon. Get your bucks ready, basically. I, I cannot impress upon people how easy it is to manipulate the web. You think that what you're seeing is what you're getting. It's not. In some ways, the Internet is a far scarier place to be than the real world in some ways because people can pretend to be whoever they want to be and you'll never know any different. And if you think this statement is overly dramatic, consider your own social media profiles. What do you put on there? Sure, it might be your photo and snapshots of your own life, but does your social media profile really represent who you are as a person in all its complexity? Or do you, like most people, only really share the stuff you think is good or that puts you in a good light? You may not even be doing it consciously, but your brain goes, okay, that's not an aspect of my life I'm going to talk about on Facebook. And in so doing, you alter the impression of you as a person that those on social media have. You're not doing it nefariously. For you, it's a matter of privacy. But those who do have nefarious intentions have the power to do exactly the same thing for their own purposes. They have the power to craft the image they want you to see. And as Colonel Clark says, you will never know any difference. And there's another aspect to our interaction with social media that Colonel Clark has some really interesting insights into. 
one of the things that we personally are finding very difficult, and I hope that it's going to be something that, that gets easier instead of harder as it has been, is to try and get these social media companies to understand the severity of the things that we are saying these people are doing. And when we issue them with a subpoena to respect the fact that we are a justice department or you know a legal department outside of the US, because it seems almost as if they only take US police seriously. So if you try and send a subpoena through to say, for example, Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp, the amount of blockages that they put up in your way, and I understand that privacy is part of their selling points, but when it comes to this type of crime, I think it is disheartening, it is disingenuous, it is bordering on my, in my mind, on almost criminal in that you would deny us access to the information that we need in order to build a case against someone. And I think that's, there needs, I understand there needs to be a balance. But at the same time, we're ending up with so many of these types of offenders hiding behind the privacy policies of these social media companies. And that in itself to me is, it's becoming progressively harder to access the information that we need. And I think that a lot of offenders are actually taking advantage of that. Here again, this interplay between what is beneficial for our society as a whole and how the criminal element use that to their advantage. In the decade between 2010 and 2020, something called the Facebook Cambridge Analytica data scandal came to light and was dealt with in the public space. Global citizens became aware of exactly how much our personal data was being used to influence a whole range of things most of us could never have imagined. As a result, We've seen privacy around personal information on the internet and social media becoming a hot topic. And as Colonel Clark says, a selling point for some platforms. What messaging apps do you have on your phone right now? Do you have WhatsApp, Signal and Telegram? Did you by any chance download Signal and Telegram after you were told WhatsApp was accessing your personal information? Yep. Welcome to the world of millions of other people who did exactly the same thing. Digital privacy has become so important that laws have been put in place to protect it, and rightly so. But the flip side of this is that now everyone's privacy is protected online, and among those people are predators. So until social media and other digital sites develop ways to think outside the box and distinguish between privacy rights and law enforcement's need to access information to protect people, your right to privacy also protects the online predator next door. Food for thought. And really, what these companies need to understand is that subpoenas for this kind of information do not come on a whim regardless of the country they're coming from. I mean, we typically spend a month profiling someone before we even think about going and doing a search and seizure. So if we get a, a 
a lead on something. We will literally spend a month dissecting this person's life apart, you know, from the point of doing full web searches all the way down to your Rika, your Vika. We go into the whole thing. And only then will we then, you know, consider going and getting a search and seizure because we want to make absolutely sure we're not going after the wrong person and that we're making sure that we follow everything legally by the book so that when it does come to trial, there's no way of them saying, well, the police did not do their job properly. So if you're concerned that by advocating for social media and websites to provide easier access to user records for law enforcement – Consider this. South Africa has one of the most robust constitutions in the world. Our human rights, including privacy, are protected by that constitution. And SAPs cannot work outside the framework of that constitution. They cannot violate your human rights without having followed the procedures that, although sometimes arduous, are actually in place to protect all of us from false accusations and unnecessary investigation by law enforcement. If SAPS is issuing a subpoena for information to a social media company like Facebook, that isn't their first step in their investigation. They've done their homework. And as users of these platforms, we need to start to encourage the platforms we use to take victims into account when they set up their internal policies. Because tomorrow, you might be the complainant on a case that needs that help. And there's another aspect of privacy sales points that has become a particular bugbear for law enforcement officials like Colonel Clark. There's something else that's that's come up quite recently that has been very irritating. I say irritating. Irritating from the point of view that we know that a crime has taken place, but we can't prove it, are disappearing messages. So your social media platforms where the messages, you know, they come and then they disappear after a certain period of time. So then we'll have someone coming and saying, I have been harassed or I have been groomed or this person has been sending me pornography. And then we say, well, where can we see what has been said and sent and all the rest of it? And they said, no, I, I can't show you because it's a disappear, you know, it's disappeared. If there's one piece of advice I can give people, if they're starting to get harassed or something like this is happening, or the, this person's sending you pornography, or they're asking you to take, you know, give them pornography, take screenshots. Please take screenshots. Because if you can bring me a screenshot, I can work with something. Often what happens is that these people come to us. I mean, I recently had a 17-year-old girl come to me and said that someone had been harassing her for pornographic material. And it was on one of these social media platforms. I'm sorry, I forget which one. It's one of the newer ones. The problem was that she did not have any screenshots or anything to, to back up what she had said. So I literally had a statement and that was all. And to be quite honest, when you take being a police officer and you take that to a prosecutor the prosecutor is going to say to you well where's the rest of it I can't prosecute on just a statement so it's very important that you if you're going to go if you're experiencing anything like that you have to document it in some way screenshots or writing down dates and times anything anything that can help us 
because those cases now are, are definitely becoming a lot more common and the disappearing messages thing is becoming a lot more attractive to these types of people who are, are doing these offences. So we need to almost be one step ahead of them instead of being one step behind because that's often what happens is when these have when we have these cases with the disappearing messages it's devastating because you can see that this person is traumatized by what's happened but there's also very little you can do because you don't actually have any proof to take to lay a charge to you know subpoena the company anything like that. Revenge porn is becoming a huge issue. And we're seeing so so much more of that over the last year. It's actually frightening. People have so little disregard, I think, for, for their exes um, that you'd be prepared to take their, the most intimate moments of their lives and put it onto a website and, and give out their phone number and basically say, I have a rape fantasy, come and find me, this is my address. You know, it, and, and I mean, we've got we've got a couple of cases like that. Can you can you imagine how terrifying it must be? Because now this person has given out all of your personal details. They know where to find you. They've got your, the, you know, people can phone you on your phone number, and basically they've issued this invitation to you know, I have this rape fantasy. Please, can you come fulfill it for me? That's living your life in terror. So as much as technology has enabled these predators, we can also use it against them. We often resort to the block button to get rid of people online, but really, that's not going to stop everybody. So if you're feeling unsafe online, screenshot. Just like the predator can screenshot material to use against you, so you can screenshot information to protect yourself and help build a case. Because the more we're able to prosecute these types of crimes, the more robust everything, investigating, prosecuting, and sentencing them, will become. I will tell you that Colonel Clark's description of how some people carry out so-called revenge porn completely shocked me. I mean... I know there are people that will post their exes' images to shame and harass them, but that level of predation, actively arranging for someone you were once in a relationship with to possibly be raped, is just mind-blowing. And sadly, apparently not uncommon. Today, not even so-called offline crimes are really completely offline anymore. There is almost always some form of digital involvement. The whole way, I think, in which we're dealing with crime, people need to, not only, not only the public, but even some of our colleagues need to understand that the digital realm is, is where a lot of it is happening. In the old days, you know, like if you had a serial rapist, they, they might take trophies away, right? I'm sure you've, you've heard of that. So they'll take like a pair of panties or, you know, an earring or something like that. Nowadays, they are videoing their attacks. You know, we've got a couple of cases on trial at the moment, so they subjudicate, but where they, they literally, they filmed what they were doing. It's the ultimate trophy, right? You can take that away and do whatever you want with it afterwards. So we need to be a little bit more aware in every aspect of our lives that 
even when it comes to crime, something digital is going to be taking place somewhere. At some point during the crime, no matter what it is, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be any kind of sexual offense. It doesn't have to be a murder. I mean, just, just anything. Always there's a digital element to it. And I think we need to be a lot more aware of that. This area of criminal investigation is still relatively new and unfolding. SAPs and the public are learning as they go. What I'm really grateful about is, is how, in the beginning, I think when these cases first started coming out and being charged for, you know, sort of around about 2010, 2011, nobody really knew what we were doing. You know, none of us do. So, and, I mean, if I think everybody was sort of like wafting around trying to figure out what was the best way of, of doing these types of investigations. How do you charge? How do you proceed with a trial? What is a, an appropriate sentence? What I really appreciate now is how in line the, the units that are investigating these types of crimes within SAPs are with the prosecutors and the magistrates and the courts. And they're all in line now as to how to view this type of crime, how serious it is that it's not just a slap on the wrist offence, that you're dealing with someone who is dabbling in things that are socially, morally, ethically, legally wrong, and that they are undermining literally the very fabric of society by treating children as being appropriate sexual partners. And that becomes horrific, especially when you're a parent. I mean, I have a a 10-year-old daughter and a six-year-old daughter. The very thought of someone thinking that my daughters would be appropriate sexual partners is, it's, it's, I I cannot, yeah, it's something so reprehensible that I, I can't wrap my head around it. But it also keeps me very focused on it because then I know that there are so many children out there who are 10 who are sending photos, who are being blackmailed into sending photos. Because often what happens is the groomer will be very sweet and coercive and, you know, they'd be very flattering and it's it's done in a very nice way, if I could put it like that. Nothing, nothing about this is nice, but if you know what I'm you know what I'm saying. It's very coercive. And children of that age don't actually recognize what they're doing. Um, as being something that is potentially wrong. So they'll take a couple of pictures and they'll send them through. Then what we find happens is the blackmailing kicks in. If you don't send me a video of you masturbating, I am going to take the photos that you've sent to me and I'm going to send them to everybody on your Instagram list. Or I have your WhatsApp number, right, and I know what school you go to. I will make sure that this goes out to everybody at your school or I will send it, uh, I'll post it on Facebook. So then the child is now terrified, right? Because what's the worst thing you can do is you can burn them on their social media and then their mom's going to find out, their dad's going to find out, and everyone's going to be disappointed in them and they won't be able to go to school because they'll be too embarrassed. So they produce more material and it just escalates and escalates from there. Um, until the point that the child is literally terrified and is having to produce more and more explicit material. And the person on the other end of the phone is just getting exactly what they want and exerting more and more pressure. And, and, you know, that's when we start seeing children trying to commit suicide. And it's frightening. They start cutting 
And then it only it only ever comes out later once one of the parents figures out what's happening or, you know, eventually they crack and they, they tell someone. And then all of this comes out. But imagine the courage that it would take a child to admit to doing all of this, right? Then we find the perpetrator. If we're lucky, we find the perpetrator and it's South Af- he's South African, right? And then we get him onto the, the stand. And now... Does the child go to court and face the person who's been doing this? As a parent, would you want your child to go through such a thing? Or would you not think to yourself, no, let's just, we'll work on it on our own and send them to a psychologist. We don't want to pursue a case. And that happens a lot. So then we're faced with a situation where we know there's something, but our victims are afraid of going forward with the process because of the type of attention that it will draw to their family. And I totally get that. And they feel that their children will be more damaged by going through that process, which in some cases, sadly, yes, it's true. But unless we all stand up and we start saying, no, this is actually not acceptable, you start with one child, you will be able to start with, with any. And I think that's that's what's very important about this type of work is that you just keep you keep going, you keep plotting because it never ends. There's always one thing after another. So if you're wondering how ten year olds end up attempting suicide or self harming, here is one possibility. Because ten year olds have access to the internet and they often need to for school. So Sadly, this is not an impossible scenario. And perhaps as these new types of crimes develop and evolve, we need to also change our view of what justice might look like for victims in crimes like this. Because only putting away the person who physically abused them is not really justice. When there are so many more viewing that material who are just as guilty. Colonel Clark cited an interesting case study from America where justice for the victim was approached in a slightly different manner. Something that I found quite interesting and that, that has, it has been done overseas, there was a, a case, the state versus Faber, where the, the victim actually got restitution from the people who had viewed or used her material. And it's not something that's happened in South Africa. That, that was an American case. But it is something that is of interest, right? That, that to me, the concept of restitution, while it seems counter to the, criminal, to, you know, to the criminal case, I think there should be both a criminal and a civil case at the same time. Because if this person can be put away for what they've done, but at some point there's also some kind of restitution to the victim, I think that that would be a very interesting concept for us to work on. I don't think we're quite there yet. The person who does it initially would have a a challenge, I think, getting everybody on board to thinking that way. But it would be very interesting, I think, if, if the victims could be restituted in some way. I really do think that restitution is something that should be looked at in these cases. But I also agree that South Africa and probably the rest of the world is not ready to put aside their idea of so-called blood money. We've seen it in many cases 
where victims have received some form of restitution. Many members of the public see it as them selling their trauma, as though they have any right to that opinion, when the ongoing and almost never-ending trauma is not theirs to hold. The reason that I think it's really important for survivors to have some other form of justice available to them, if they wish to seek it, is because, as Rinal Kukumur of Rape Crisis Centre said when I chatted with her, so many survivors of sexual violence and abuse link their healing to what they see as justice. And when that justice is not served in the way they'd envisioned, the healing can be thwarted too. Colonel Clark would acknowledge that in cases of child abuse material production, restitution may have a negative effect too. Something else that, while the restitution idea is is something that that is perhaps worth following up in this country, the one thing I will say about restitution is that it puts a price on child sexuality and it puts a price on the value of that child as a sexual object. So it does have pros and cons, if I could put it that way, that, that it would be very difficult to say, is restitution the appropriate way of going simply because am I only worth 50,000 rand or am I only worth, you know, X amount of money? That then I think also becomes problematic in itself. So it's a very, the whole topic is itself is very sensitive. I think it's only been taken seriously probably over the last two years. There's still a lot of discourse on it. It's a never-ending field in terms of the research that's coming out. The precedents are now being set within the South African legal system, so we've now got a better idea of how to charge, how to arrange for sentencing. Initially, when I started, it was fines and suspended sentences. At least now we're seeing, on average, for someone who has a collection of, let's say, 3,500 you are probably looking at about eight years. There is a case in the Eastern Cape, which is currently in court, where the person had 125,000 images. So God knows how they're going to try, you know, sentence him for that. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, that, that type of collection indicates a vast amount of time and energy and effort. Nobody just has 125,000 images without having sat for hours and hours and hours and downloaded all of those things. So it's a very nuanced, challenging kind of area and type of crime that we deal with. But it it definitely has a lot of, there's a lot of satisfaction when you get it right. I felt it was really important, following all of this pretty horrifying information, for us to understand how we can protect ourselves and our children against these types of crimes. Here's what Colonel Clark had to say. Okay, if your children are, are younger, you can get away with tying their all of their accounts to your, say, for example, your personal account. And then you'll be able to monitor their activity. Say, for example, you use a Google, you use a, a Gmail account, you're then able to tie up your Google account to a Google activity tracker, basically. It's all part of the same Google services that they offer. And then you can see exactly what your child is watching. You can also then set your YouTube channels to being kids, YouTube kids, as opposed to 
YouTube itself. There are a number of um, programs that are like net nannies where they'll block off certain things that your child is not supposed to be or that you would like the child not to watch. However, as they get older, they start wanting their own independence and their own privacy. To be quite honest, uh, kids nowadays are way, way, way more cleverer than us when it comes to using the internet. And if you put things in place, they often find ways of bypassing it. The one thing that I will say is that I think it is better for them to make the mistakes now while you are still around as a parent to be able to deal with the fallout than for them to do it and they have no one to go to. And I think it is better to have open discussions with your children about the possibilities of what could happen on the internet. I know they are educated a bit about it at school, but I think it's far more important for your child to know that they can come to you the minute someone says something or someone does something that they don't feel comfortable with. As much as we would like to imagine that we have the ability to be able to stop our children going somewhere and doing something, the fact of the matter is they are learning how to circumvent all of these things. It doesn't take much. Uh, my nine-year-old is capable of doing things that I would never, ever think of doing or would never have thought of doing myself. Like she, she's able to do stuff on her phone that I find quite frightening. They're a generation that is entrenched in this technology. And as parents, I don't think we are. So I think the best we can hope for is just to be really frank with them and say that if anything does happen, that there is a place where they can, you know, a safe space they can come and land where you are able to give them the comfort of being a child and being able to deal with it as an, as an adult, but also just let them make the mistakes now while you're able to still fix it rather than later when they can't come to you. Uh, one of the things I do with my daughter is she has stickers over her camera because there is, okay, this sounds completely paranoid, but there, there are programs that are capable of hacking into your camera. So you're not aware that you actually are being watched. So she constantly has, you know, like a sticky note or something stuck over her camera and then only takes it off when she needs to, um, you know, do work with her classmates on Teams or whatever. So it's it's about a lot about being them being aware of what's going on. Unfortunately, I think the world is such nowadays that, you cannot protect them from everything. And at some point, somewhere along the line, someone is going to say or do something. And the best you can hope for is that you have given them the tools and the confidence in you to know that they can come and say, mom, dad, so you know this has happened, I, I need your help with this, or I'm not comfortable, or what should I do, or you know anything like that. I guess it's like the modern day version of explaining to children that they shouldn't allow anyone to touch them where their swimming costume touches their body. Those simplistic conversations, but also letting them understand that it's okay to make mistakes. And keep in mind that no matter what you say out loud to them, they are constantly learning about your real views on things from the way you react. 
So if you're in the car and you hear a story on the news about someone who's become a victim of revenge porn or even child abuse material crimes, and your instinctive reaction is to either shame the victim for being, quote, dumb enough to send that stuff in the first place, end quote, or even shaming the victim's parents for not knowing. No matter what you claim to believe in conversation, your child has just learned what you really believe. They've learned that if this happens to them, they will not be able to come to you, no matter how much you tell them that they can, because your real personal view is that survivors of these types of digital sex crimes are either reckless or have bad parents. Why would they, A, want to be considered reckless by their parents, and B, want their parents to feel that they are bad parents, if they find it's happened to their own child? So I think for me, it's about recognizing that as a parent, you are constantly teaching your child what life is about by the way you live it. Is that scary as hell and horribly intimidating? Absolutely. But I think it's a reality. I actually think that the sticker idea is very clever because it could become almost a psychological reminder of the dangers of that camera. If your child needs to physically take that sticker off to be able to take a photograph, they're probably more likely to think about why the sticker was put there in the first place. Heck, I think some of us adults could do with a sticker over our cameras. I mentioned to Colonel Clark that the IPS is really quite an under-the-radar unit within SAPS. I've noticed even on social media, the only time you see them posting about any cases they've been involved in is when the case has gone to court and been successfully prosecuted. And really, interviews like this one that she's giving me are quite rare, because they aren't members of SAPS who are constantly publicly speaking about their work. Uh, how can I put it? And, and my, my detectives, the two detectives I have working with me, who, by the way, I would be completely lost without, they are like, oh my goodness, yeah. If, if I didn't have the two of them, I would have lost my mind long ago. But they are, we're all on the same page with that, that we let our work speak for itself. And that's, seen, that's really good enough for us. And so it's maybe easy for perpetrators to think that they're in the free and clear. But if you are responsible for any of the types of crimes we've discussed in this interview today, Colonel Clark has a parting message for you. We are there. We are listening. People don't think we know what you're doing. We do. <laughs> We're coming to get you. It's just a matter of time. I would like to extend my sincere thanks to Colonel Clark for taking the time to chat with me for this interview. I think that her insights have been absolutely valuable, and if she has the time in the future, I'd most certainly like to chat with her again about her work. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. 
if you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on, on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.